Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. To the government's frustration, to Boris Johnson's dismay, there is only one story in Westminster right now, and it's burst right out of the Westminster bubble. It's about that party, or those parties, who attended them, who knew about them, and crucially, what the Prime Minister knew about them. Yesterday in the Commons, in one of the most highly charged Prime Minister's question sessions for a long time, Johnson apologised for being present at the May 20th gathering in the Downing Street Garden and said he took full responsibility, but insisted that he believed it was a work event. So is that going to be enough for Sue Gray, the senior civil servant leading the investigation into Partygate? Is it going to be enough for Tory MPs, furious at Number 10's handling of a story that seems to gather momentum with each week? And is it going to be enough for voters, for whom... May was a time of tight lockdown and personal sacrifice. Joining us at this searing time in British politics are two IFG experts, our Deputy Director Hannah White. Hi, Hannah. Hello. And our Associate Director Tim Durrant. Hi, Tim. Hi, great to be back. Great to have you both with us. And I'm delighted to be joined as well in the virtual studio, as it still is, for this Inside Briefing debut by David Bond, the Deputy Political Editor at the Evening Standard. Hi, David. Great to have you with us. Great to be with you. Very conscious of Evening Standard deadlines, which are rather different from the other newspapers. And particular thanks for that. Let's start in a, in a discussion that is going to be many, many sides of a discussion about standards. Let's start with that party. David, these reports have been accompanied by an outpouring of stories of people not being able to say goodbye to loved ones who died at the height of lockdown. What was the mood like in Prime Minister's questions yesterday? Well, it was absolutely extraordinary. The first thing to say is that the House was absolutely packed, not just with MPs, but also um, members of the lobby, the journalists who um, I looked around at one point and Nick Robinson was sort of sat on the floor behind me. It was really packed to the rafters. And, you know, we saw, you know, all right, we had an apology from Boris Johnson just a few weeks back uh, over the other party allegations. But we saw a very, very different Boris Johnson to the one we've become used to. He was totally contrite. He he genuinely seemed to be sort of uh, isolated and shocked. He looked a bit broken to me. Uh, from where I was sat. So we were seeing a very different sort of Johnson, a very different prime minister. And of course, lots of people have remarked about this, but the sort of silence from the conservative benches in support for him, all right, they were there in, in, in you know, large numbers, although Rishi Sunak wasn't on the front bench. But, you know, in terms of the usual volume of support you get for the prime minister at prime minister's questions, that definitely wasn't there. So yeah, it was, it, it felt like a pretty momentous event. The Chancellor was down in the southwest, I think, saying how pleased he was to be there. You've just come straight from the lobby briefing. What's the latest? Well, I mean, the the story this morning uh, is that in terms of the cabinet kind of coming out onto the airwaves and shoring up, trying to shore up Boris Johnson's position, we heard from Brandon Lewis uh, this morning, who was on on the um, broadcast media round. And since then, we've had Simon Clark out of the Treasury, uh, pointedly out of the Treasury, uh, I suspect, just to try and, again, give the impression that the cabinet is behind Johnson and that this, these stories about Rishi Sunak not being fully uh, supportive of the Prime minister trying to dispel some of those and really uh, Boris Johnson's spokesman was was sticking to that line uh, that uh, the prime minister used at prime minister's question time yesterday and in, in that you know we need to wait for the outcome of the investigation by Sue Gray into uh, the party on May the 20th 2020 but also the other parties but that you know uh, Johnson was sorry for the hurt 
that the impression of, of these parties had created. So, you know, kind of continuing to tread that very fine line of appearing to apologise, but not actually admitting that he had done anything wrong. He didn't say he'd misled the Commons and he didn't say, I broke the rules. No, quite. And he was very careful to say that um, technically it could have been considered or could have been said to have been uh, a work event and technically within the COVID rules that were in place at the time. You know, he said that when he went out into the garden for 25 minutes on May the 20th, that he thought that this was a work event, uh, you know, which obviously led to uh, derision from Keir Starmer, uh, who called it pathetic defence. Hannah, is that right, that what he's described, what the Prime Minister has described, is technically legal? It may not be believable, but but it is technically legal. I don't think there's any definitive answer to that. There's apparently such a thing as a work party. Apparently, Christmas parties can sometimes be defined as work legally. And so if he could say, if it could be proven in some way that it was reasonably necessary to have a party for work purposes at this point in time... That may be the ambiguity legally that he's seeking to exploit in saying technically it could be said to be within the rules. But I think that, you know, it's not just the legal jeopardy that he's in here. It's the, the has he broken the ministerial code, as you said, Bronwyn, has he lied to the House about this? And at the end of the day, what do the citizens of the UK make of all this? Are they going to be satisfied with a narrow legal exemption or are they just going to see a prime minister who, at the height of the lockdown, was having a party? They may well not be satisfied, and we'll come on to that, but he would be in worse, a worse position had he said he'd done something illegal at this point, arguably. I mean, I think he definitely wanted to get some of the facts of that party on the record so that they didn't just come out when the Sue Gray uh, report came out as a, as a big news at that point. I think he was very careful to say that he had been there, it had been for 25 minutes, then he had gone back in. I think it was very deliberate to get some of those facts out at an early stage because, as people had been saying, it was very confusing why he was saying he couldn't detail his own actions on that day and we'd have to wait for the report to find those out. Tim, tell us about the Sue Gray report because the Prime Minister has kept saying, look, let's wait for Sue Gray's inquiry to report. But is that going to bring this all to an end? I don't think it is at all. I mean, uh, as Hannah said, you know, he clearly wants to set some of the facts out, but that that is what Sue Gray's remit is, is, is to find out what happened, who knew what, who said what, and who went where, she won't be passing judgment or kind of ascribing blame to any anyone, minister or, or civil servant. Um, there's been some briefing out this morning that the uh, the report is going to focus on the kind of the culture of, of number 10, the work culture, and particularly around the drinking culture. It looks like, you know, it could be quite a sort of a wide ranging report in terms of how number 10 is run, but not, as I say, looking at who uh, is, is to blame for anything. But that's what people are expecting it to do, aren't they? They're expecting it to say who brought this party about, who was invited, who turned up, who was responsible for it, and what was the Prime Minister's role? Yeah, and I think that's you know that's part of the problem that, that this whole scenario has created for, for Sue Gray and the civil service is that there's an expectation, as you say, Bronwyn, that, that almost she is going to be able to pass judgment on, on the Prime Minister, which is not her job, and isn't how how our system works you know there are there are other people who um, hold ministers and politicians to account for for political decisions it's not the civil services job so she's in a very difficult position 
um, and and the wider sort of civil service machine in the in number ten and the cabinet office are in a very difficult position because you know there's clearly an expectation that something has to be done uh, once this report comes out but what that is and and how how things will fall how the dominoes will fall is still is still unclear she is she does have a formidable reputation for this she's been in charge of eth- ethics of course yes so one of the tweets i really liked um the past 24 hours were from hugo rifkind of the time saying what if there isn't a sue gray she's become such a symbol out there for all of this um who tim who could be in the firing line on this because from what you're saying possibly no one well, indeed. I mean, I think probably we'll have to, <laughs> I'm going to say that line, but we'll have to wait for the investigation to see what she says. But um, it's, it, if I think for civil servants, uh, ultimately, if, if she finds that civil servants made mistakes, then that's a, a kind of a civil service disciplinary matter that ultimately will go to the cabinet secretary as, as head of the civil service. He obviously uh, was the one who started the investigation into the parties and then had to recuse himself because it turned out that his office had had a party in Christmas 2020 as well. So on the civil service side, there's more kind of formal, you know, HR processes and management structures and so on. On the political side, there is uh, Lord Guy, the independent advisor on ministerial interests. If if Sue Gray thinks that there may be has been a breach of the ministerial code, she might recommend that, that Lord Guy be asked to look into it. Uh, but that's for the Prime Minister to decide whether or not Lord Guy is able to look into this. And then ultimately, it's as, as, as Hannah and, and David were kind of alluding to, you know, it's, it's down to politics and, and the court of public opinion. A lot of MPs, Conservative MPs have said, well, we'll wait and see what she says. We know the kind of the broad outline of the facts already, but if she provides some extra detail, some extra information that sways MPs one way or another, then things might return to the political arena. But it is very much, as, at least as far as the Prime Minister is concerned, I think it's a it's a politically focused battle that is the biggest challenge for him. Hannah, just saying on the Sue Gray report, is she going to disappoint these huge expectations now placed on her? Well, she's going to do her best, but it's a really difficult position for a civil servant to be in, I think. And I think it's slightly symptomatic of the evolution of her inquiry. It was set up really just to get the facts on record about three parties that um, had been revealed. And it has evolved into something which now, um, you know, is is potentially determining the future of the prime minister. And that's an extremely difficult position for her to be in and for her as a sort of representative of the civil service to be in. Our system doesn't work well in terms of of ethics and and standards when it's the person who is leading the government who is being investigated, because at the end of the day, these processes come back to him. If he was to engage Lord Guyte to say, has the ministerial code been broken, Lord Guyte would then report to him and it would be for him as prime minister, as uh, you know, owner of the ministerial code to determine what the consequences should be. And that leaves us in a pretty unsatisfactory position, I think. Just on what the Prime Minister might have known, he's now said he was at this party in his own garden. But would he really, should we really expect that he saw the email that organised all that? Isn't there something wrong if the Prime Minister's being copied into emails organising staff parties? I don't think it's necessarily, I mean, you're quite right. It's, it seems unlikely that he was monitoring his inbox to that extent. But the fact is, as soon as he stepped out of the door into the into the garden, saw how many people were there, engaged in conversation which presumably wasn't all about work themes it, it presumably became evident to him at that point that it was uh you know not necessarily a work event and I think that that's probably why he said what he did at PMQs about when I was there I should have sent everyone back inside but I think the line about with hindsight is very 
uh, tenuous from my point of view, because, you know, almost everything that ministers were doing around this time was uh, setting out and reiterating the rules for everyone else. And to say that with hindsight, you realise in those circumstances when your main job has been to communicate to the public what the rules are, that you suddenly realise that the rules might have been breached does, you know, sounds um, implausible to me. Yeah. So, David, maybe you can take us back to the politics, because both Hannah and, and Tim have said, look, this is going to come back to Tory MPs. Uh, it's now in their hands, isn't it? It is. And I think what Johnson did with his statement uh, before PMQs uh, on Wednesday was to buy himself a bit of time. He was obviously um, having meetings with conservative backbenchers in the tea rooms on after PMQs in the afternoon. Um, and, you know, some were convinced uh, to, to give him a bit more time to wait until the grey report is is out. Uh, others less so. Uh, we've reported uh, in the Standard on, on Thursday morning that there are four Conservative MPs um, since, or four senior Conservatives since uh, then, who have uh, said that he, they think he should go. Three members of the 1922 backbench committee of Conservative MPs have put in a letter asking for a leadership challenge or, or, or no confidence vote. So clearly a lot have not been convinced, but I think a lot are standing back and just waiting to see how the Grey report uh, turns out before deciding. And I think also the longer term, if you take the slightly longer term view, if he can sort of get through the Grey report, if he isn't found to have, I think the two key things is whether she produces any evidence, and both Hannah and Tim are right, that you know this is not going to apportion blame. But if she produces an account which then conflicts with previous statements Boris Johnson has made, then I think that will put him in a very difficult position. But if he is able to get through that, then really the the key test will be the May local elections, because then there will be a proper sense of whether the public um, have had enough of of the Conservatives and of Boris Johnson. I think that will really give Tory MPs uh, the jitters at that point. So those local elections are very important. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we did a story last week based on some analysis by the Tory peer, Lord Hayward, who said that in London, uh, which, of course, remember, is dominated by Labour. But, you know, in London, there is a sense that the Conservatives could be about to lose uh, totemic borough councils such as Wandsworth, Westminster. Now, I know they've said this in the past and it doesn't come to pass, but what late Lord Hayward was saying is that there is a real chance that it could happen this time if if you if the current polls don't move or get worse for Johnson and the Tories. And that, I think, you know, will be amplified across the country. If that's happening in London, then that will really be amplified. And I think, you know, that is what people can, you know, Conservative MPs who are already opposed to Johnson didn't want him to become leader. They can sort of point to that and say, well, we did a deal with Johnson. It was a transactional relationship because he was a winner. And if we're now looking like we're losing heavily two years out from a general election, then this is the moment to make a change. And so what's your instinct on this? Do you think he can tough it out at least to those elections? It's really hard to say. I mean, I think yesterday, you know, that did feel, as I say, it felt quite momentous. He felt like you were watching a tipping point. But, you know, who knows with Boris Johnson? You know, he's had so many lives uh, and manages to sort of claw his way out of the wreckage. And so you'd be unwise to, to, to write him off at this stage. 
as I say, I think the Grey Report, while it might end up being a bit of an anticlimax, you know, everyone is putting so much pressure on this report and, you know, sort of hopes it will provide clarity. It may not. And he may be able to sort of limp on, but he's already been severely wounded. A lot of Conservative MPs off the record are saying to journalists, look, he's finished, it's over. It's just a question of when. And I think that probably is true. But, you know, it's such a febrile situation at the moment. So every week you feel like there is a new... Uh, sort of scandal or some kind of new controversy that Johnson is having to fight his way through. And you just think after a while, they're just going to get so fatigued with this that they will just decide that enough's enough. All right. Well, on that note, let's, let's jump to our second topic within this, Johnson's future looking at the scenarios both he doesn't survive and and he does and what he can make of it all. So let's start with that first one, that he doesn't survive. Tim, how would that happen? Talk us through the, pro- the process. Well, so as, as David said, you know, there are these the, the, the famous letters that go into to Sir Graham Brady, who's the chair of the, um, the backbench committee of Conservative MPs. If 15% of the parliamentary party, which at the moment is 54 MPs, write a letter saying they no longer have confidence in Johnson to be the leader of the party, that then triggers a a vote of no confidence uh, within the parliamentary party. If he loses that vote, he's no longer the leader of the party and uh, there's then a a contest for, for the leadership. The question, I think, if that happens, I mean, we, we, we don't know how many letters Sir Graham has. It, he doesn't have to tell anyone. Uh, you know, there was a lot of speculation around this when May, Theresa May was Prime Minister and it took a long time to get to the threshold for her, her vote of no confidence, which she ultimately survived. And there were, um, there were weeks and weeks, in fact, months of, 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 of chatter about how many letters have gone in and, and, and lots of kind of stuff. It's a lot of guesswork. If that were to happen, and then if Johnson were to lose that vote, then there would be a leadership contest whereby MPs would whittle down the challenges to a final two who would go to the party membership um, to be elected as the next leader of the party. But that raises the question about who is prime minister during that time. So this, because, yeah, Theresa May survived the vote, no confidence against her by, by her party. This has never happened when a Conservative leader has been prime minister. Would he stay on as prime minister, as a sort of interim prime minister, while his his party is electing a leader, and you know they'd kind of expedite that process to do it as quickly as possible, or would someone step up as a kind of, you know, temporary interim prime minister who isn't involved in the um, the leadership challenge? I don't know. You know, Dominic Raab is deputy prime minister at the moment. Would he step up? There's a whole host of questions about how that would actually work and and what that would mean for the government. Hmm. And David, do we know who the likely contenders would be, and do they have much support? Well, of course, the, the the familiar names are Rishi Sunak, who again going back to this, the eight hour wait for him to tweet his support, uh, which ended up being pretty lukewarm for um, Boris Jen- Johnson after PMQs on Wednesday. Um, we we have him; he is obviously um, the favourite. Uh, you have Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary, who has been on manoeuvres, according to some Tory MPs, for months, uh, but was pretty fulsome in her support, although it did again come quite late on Wednesday evening. Uh, she was pretty fulsome in her support for Johnson. Those, I think, would be the two leading contenders at the moment. And Jer- Jeremy Hunt, as someone who was not invited to any parties and whose staff, because he didn't have any um, uh, in, in government, because he's not in government, his staff won't have been to parties. Is he, is he in there? I think he probably is, as it's seen as a safe pair of hands. But I think the problem for all of them is that, and in a way, one of the reasons why you haven't seen a sort of rap, more rapid move by those those who want Johnson out 
is that they aren't entirely convinced of who would come next. And I think there are questions about Liz Truss, uh, even though she, you know, is supposedly incredibly popular with the Tory grassroots, you know, she consistently tops this Conservative home poll. You know, there are questions about Sunak. You know, I think if there was an absolute standout, obvious next person, then I think they would be making uh, moves more quickly. And Hannah, the summer sounds very disruptive. Is there ever a good time for a sudden change of prime minister? We're still dealing with coronavirus. No, I mean, I think, I think we, I mean, we all obviously hope we're emerging from the pandemic. I think from the Conservative Party, uh, you know, a little way out from the next election is important. They need somebody. Uh, if they were going to make a change, they would need that person to have time to to bed down ahead of an election. I guess it's also an interesting question about whether it is actually in Labour's interests for there to be a change of prime minister right now. Is it better for them to have the sort of the scandal uh, and the allegations against Boris Johnson to continue to throw at the Tories and actually not in their interests for a sort of clean break and a new candidate to be in place before the next election? Your answer to that question? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it, it's, you have to be careful what you wish for, don't you? And I, mean, I think for if, if, the, if, you're, if you're Labour, you mean? Yeah, if you're Labour, exactly. And it depends who they think they will get as an alternative candidate. I think from the country's point of view, I mean, it it depends on your analysis of how the coronavirus pandemic has been handled and your confidence in Boris Johnson in being able to bring us out of of that situation, whether you think uh, now is the best time for a change. I think disruption is probably is not the the key thing. The important thing is to have the person you favour in place as soon as possible. So let's look at the second scenario that Johnson does survive, that he toughs it out as, as every bit of his, his reputation and what we know of his character implies he will try and do. Then what? Uh, David, could Johnson get his agenda back on track? One of the really interesting dynamics in all this is what do the 2019 Red Wall MPs who were elected for the first time in these areas which hadn't previously voted Conservative, what do they do? Because I think they're actually absolutely crucial to what happens next for Johnson. So let's assume he survives. It will be in part thanks to them continuing to support him because I think from what we're hearing is that, you know, there are a number of them who are looking at the recent polling uh, and saying, well, look, there's a fair chance, you know, I've only just been elected, there's a fair chance if this continues, I'm going to lose my seat and are are incredibly nervous. So although in one way they have Brexit and getting Brexit done in the 2019, you know, they owe their seat to Boris Johnson, but things have changed so rapidly that, you know, there is a fair chance that some of them may not be feeling quite so loyal now. So I think if Johnson does survive, I think he will absolutely have to deliver for those uh, Red Wall MPs on the levelling up agenda. And again and again, you know, you've seen through the whole series of problems that Johnson has faced from Owen Patterson's Slee storm and the other issues through the autumn, you know, the, the levelling up agenda has been continually uh, sort of put on the back burner. We're still waiting for Michael Gove's white paper on this. And even then, there's plenty of people around who are saying that it doesn't feel like that's going to really deliver. It could be a sort of tarting up of towns or whatever. But is essentially not going to be the fundamental reform. And in any way, you know, it would take so many years to kind of get the investment needed to to see real change on the ground. So I think, you know, even if he is able to survive and the Tory party decide to stick with him, I think there are big questions uh, for those sort of key constituencies come the next general election. That's really interesting. Tim, I mean, there's lots of talk you hear about resetting number 10 after all. Mm. Could that happen? Is that realistic? 
Well, as you say, Roman, there's been lots of talk about it recently, but there's been lots of talk about it, you know, for the last year or, or, or more. So there was obviously a reset at the end of 2020, start of 2021, when Dominic Cummings left as, as P- the PM's senior advisor and Dan Rosenfield was brought in as, as a new chief of staff. And he's had a pretty difficult year in the job, you know, lots of criticism against him. I think there's a sense among Conservative MPs that number 10 isn't or the Prime Minister isn't plugged in enough to what MPs are thinking, uh, particularly those those 29 intake that, that David just mentioned. And and I think there's there's a view that, you know, Dan Rosenfield and his his team are partly to to, to blame for that lack of join-up between the PM and, and the Parliamentary Party. I mean, as you say, you know, this, this refresh has been talked about numerous times. And I think ultimately it comes down to whether or not the Prime Minister himself is willing to make a change. You know, he can bring in new people, but if he doesn't change how he does things, if he doesn't change how he prioritises things, how he makes decisions, how what, what he empowers his team to do, then the same things will keep happening. As, as we've seen, um, there's something said so far. Now, Hannah, one, one flagship issue for Boris Johnson is net zero. As we were discussing on last week's podcast, he's under... Boris Johnson's under a lot of pressure on this front because of energy prices. Is this all going to get worse? Yes, it's a really tricky one. I mean, with the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis emerging, it's going to be a tricky political balance for him to try to stick to the net zero commitments, to try to maintain momentum towards the the, the goals that the government set for itself, and to try to sort of maintain a degree of cross-party backing for, for this agenda, I think. And it's definitely something we're starting to see stirrings on the back benches of concern, I think, about how the government is going to reconcile these the net zero target with the need to ensure that that people have affordable and secure energy supplies. Uh, so, yeah, not a not an easy one in Boris Johnson's uh, inbox, I don't think. And we even saw the government beginning to pick up and look with some interest at Labour's suggestion of not having VAT on energy bills. Uh, something that Brexit allows uh, Britain to uh, make its own uh, policy on. Though, as we pointed out in the IFG, this would benefit people who are better off. But a, a lot of a lot of political pressure on him as well. Yes, and we've got a, a new report out about this actually today, Bronwyn, which which looks at, at, at what Boris Johnson is really going to need to do this year to to try to press this agenda forward. Obviously, we are still chair of the of the COP. Um, until Egypt take over, and I, you know, I think it's it's one where really the sort of global Britain agenda is going to come into tension with his uh, domestic handling, really, of his party. Yeah, we meaning the UK there, not the IFG, which does have an excellent report out today. <laughs> Indeed. Well, on that, let's turn and uh, let's leave Boris Johnson's predicament aside thought of, and turn to the wider question of, of standards and ethics and the systems underpinning these in government. And this is something that the IFG has been working a lot on in the past few months and has a lot to say on. David, I mean, in fact, it feels in fact we've been talking about standards and ethics for a lot of the past year. Do you think people see it as a wider problem or do they are they pinning it on this particular prime minister? Well, I mean, it's so interesting because, and just listening to Hannah there talking about net zero, you know, the fact we're even talking about standards and these sorts of issues, when you think about all the other big ticket issues that we should be dealing with, I mean, even putting the pandemic and coronavirus aside, you know, net zero, the fact COP26 came and went, you know, the energy bills, inflation, you know, we've got genuine problems coming down the track with the economy, the cost of living, levelling up, you know, all of these things are absolutely massive. And yet here we are talking about standards in Parliament. That's not to say they're not important. They are hugely important. But I think the public 
my senses is that they really felt quite strongly from what I could tell. I was down in Bexley and Sidcup before uh, the by-election down there, just before Christmas. And this was, a, you know, right when the Owen Paston Slee storm was really hot. I was really surprised just how engaged people were with that story and how, and they didn't necessarily see it as a conservative issue um, solely. They saw it as a kind of general issue of Westminster and Parliament. So I think the kind of expenses scandal, that still has a very long uh, people still have a long memory of that. And so I think anything in this area, people do care about. So I think it is it is really significant. I think people are, are looking at what's been going on, not just with the parties, but uh, also with the allegations about the refurbishment of Boris Johnson's flat. These issues just really cut through. And looking at the sort of the way, and, and, and both Tim and Hannah will, will know much more about this than, than I do, but just the whole mechanism around uh, the ministerial code around the MPs code has really been tested over the last few months. There is a need for change, but it, you know, it seems to me that there is no obvious way of just making those changes quickly. Anna, you've been writing and talking a vast amount about this. Just give us a snapshot of what works and what really doesn't work about this whole system. Well, I mean, the system as a whole is is very complicated. So I think we've seen a number of instances in which things have happened, which public opinion says this seems really inappropriate and wrong, and yet it hasn't been caught by any of the rules. I think that was the case with the uh, David uh, Cameron lobbying, for example. So, so that's one problem. The other sort of perennial issue is that at the end of the day, lots of our system involves elected members uh, and indeed ministers and the prime minister determining guilt or innocence and sanction for themselves. This was the issue we had with the Owen Paterson case that uh, when the government didn't like the sanction to which Owen Paterson was going to be subject, it decided well, perhaps it would change the rules. And at the end of the day, it was MPs themselves who were voting on Owen Paterson's uh, sanction. There's obviously various reports that have already been published on this by us, but also by people at the Committee on Standards in Public Life. The, the Common Standards Committee issued a report before Christmas, which was really a sort of a bit of a think piece in a consultation document. And they're looking at how the Code of Conduct for MPs could be improved. Obviously, the whole House of Commons before Christmas voted on this issue of MPs second jobs, which has sort of gone into the background now, but agreed that actually those should be kept within reasonable limits. And we've yet to see how that is going to be acted upon. Uh, so uh, th there's a lot of things in play. But I think some of the bigger issues about the system as a whole may not be addressed by some of the sort of specific proposals, which are you know, more, more of a micro nature, which are, uh, have been proposed so far. Thank you for that. Tim, we were talking earlier, all of us, about the pressure on Sue Gray and the, the difficulty of a serving civil servant investigating a matter that is now so political. Why isn't the independent advisor leading this one? So the, the only way that Lord Guyte, um, the independent advisor on ministerial interest, can start an investigation is if the prime minister asks him to. He can say to the PM, actually, I think I should look into this, but it still has to be for the PM to, to kind of sanction that investigation. What we did see, and, and, and thus far... Johnson hasn't done that on, on the on the party stuff. He might have to, or he, there might be political pressure on him to do so once Sue Gray's report comes out. But what we did see, there was an exchange of letters between Lord Guy and the Prime Minister, um, which was published last week, looking at the Downing Street flat, one of the other scandals from, from last year. And in there... Both Lord Guide and the Prime Minister talked about a kind of expansion or a strengthening of Lord Guide's powers. 
We don't know exactly what form that kind of strengthening will take, but one of the things that's been called for by the Committee on Standards in Public Life, as, as Hannah mentioned, by parliamentarians and indeed by, by us at the IFG, has been that Lord Guy should be able to start his own investigations because without that, he's not really an independent advisor. He, he, he only can advise on the things that the Prime Minister asks him to advise on rather than on what he thinks is important. So hopefully we'll see in the coming months that his role has been strengthened and that he does have both more support from civil servants and more independent ability to look into potential misconduct by ministers rather than just where the Prime Minister asks him to. And does the Prime Minister have to give his backing for that strengthening of the independent advisor's role? We've, we've heard uh, rumours of Lord Guy you know, perhaps going to resign ever some weeks ago. Uh, now he hasn't. I mean, does the Prime Minister have to agree? Yes, he does. So he he is the one who, you know, he, he kind of writes the terms of reference, he writes the job description for, for what Lord Guyte does. And as you say, the fact that Lord Guyte didn't resign implies perhaps that there's been some discussion already and that, you know, he's he's kind of reassured that his, his position can be made to work. And, and these letters, again, do imply that there has been some discussion and that there will be more discussion that will allow him to, to be more uh, independent. But it is ultimately always down to the Prime Minister. But this is presumably a very good point at which the independent advisor might try and get concessions off the Prime Minister and one we might use to judge whether Johnson is intending to make changes to the system. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I think Lord Guy has quite a lot of leverage now. Clearly, the Prime Minister has been criticised, you know, repeatedly over the last few months about standards. And so it really is, I mean, I, I feel like we've been saying this at the IFG for the last few months, but it feels like now is a moment, you know, there is a real kind of things have come together and, and now is a chance. And it's, it's an opportunity for the Prime Minister as well, right? He can say, look, okay, I understand why people are angry. I understand that things have gone wrong. And here is what I'm doing to to improve the situation and to make it better. And, and you think that would be a, a good thing for him as well as for the, the wider system. David, do you think he'll take that chance? I mean, there's nothing in Boris Johnson's uh, past which suggests he's the person who's going to be a crusader for tighter <laughs> rules and then observing them. I mean, I just think it's – but, you know, w we are where we are, and he is in a tight spot. And clearly, you know, if you look at the thread that runs through all of these things, it is this kind of idea that those in charge are making rules – you know, and they bend them and they change them to, to meet their own needs. And in some cases, maybe don't even follow them. I think that is something, again, that the public really, really feel quite angry about. And so I think there is an opportunity for Boris Johnson to to do something. But even if you take the Lord Guy letter exchange, you know, in his letter to Lord Guy um, in December, in response to his initial questions, which all goes back to this, this funding of the, of the Downing Street flat, he gave no firm commitment about when he would talk to him about changing these, beefing up his powers. Um, you know, there was a sort of vague reference to getting together and chatting about it in the new year during the lobby briefing today. Again, you know, almost on a daily basis, the Prime Minister's spokesman is asked, you know, when when is he going to sort of, you know, give his response? When is he going to sit down with Lord Guy? And actually, and it's always sort of kicked down the road. I mean, partly because of, you know, the extraordinary events of the last few days, I'm sure. But you know, it always feels like it's kind of not a priority. I don't know, the jury's out. I, I, I'm yet to be convinced that um, Johnson will, will will sort of make the changes that are necessary. And even then, you know, will he go as far as saying the independent advisor will have the power to initiate his own investigations? I don't think he will go that far. Well, on that momentous question and on, on, on an answer, um, thank, you for, thank you for offering an answer at this point. We're going to have to 
leave it. We are where we are indeed, but we have arrived at the end of another episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Hannah White, Tim Durrant, and especially to David Bond. Thanks for being with us. I very much enjoyed this work event. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. Do check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. We've got a lot on there. And this terrific new report we were referring to on the seven steps the government needs to take to keep its net zero strategy on track. So it's been quite a week, quite a party. And for the Prime Minister, the hangover does not seem like easing just now. See you next week.